Welcome to Craft Talk. I am Zachi Shemish. In this podcast, I will explore different topics. Anything from martial arts, self-defense, trauma recovery, and personal growth. All through the lens of Krav Maga and my experience on the mat working with thousands of people. In each episode, I will share expert insights, practical tips, and inspiring stories. If you're looking to take a deep dive into the world of self-defense and self-growth, this podcast has something to offer you. Christian is a Krav Maga instructor who is also wearing the hat of a therapist during regular work hours. Informed, trained, and licensed to help, she assists people heal on the couch and on the mat. In today's talk, we're discussing the effect of trauma on the body and why and how training on the mat helps change it. Enjoy. Kristen, good morning. Good morning. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So, um, we've, we've had countless conversations about uh, what you do. It, it, I, I will shortly say that you are a clinical social worker. Yes. Um, in addition to being a ninja. <laughs> and um, how those two fields meet and what we do, which they often, they often do and people underestimate them, how much knowledge needs to be going on on both ends in order to provide the best training for the people who are coming on mat. Yeah. So let's start with you telling a little bit about yourself and um, we'll dive into the, the hows and the what's right after. Sure. Uh, so yes, yeah, so I'm, you know, as you know, I'm an instructor here at Krav Maga Experts. I uh, started Krav about 10 years ago, but have been in doing martial arts for about 20 years, started when I was about 15. Um, and in addition to that, I'm a clinical social worker, as you said. So I currently, I work, um, as the assistant director of a multi-systemic therapy program for at-risk adolescent youth, uh, at a child welfare agency for children with chronic medical conditions and complex medical needs and developmental disabilities. I also have a private practice, uh, where I specialize in seeing all ages, but really my initial specialization was children and families and specializing in trauma. Uh, and I also work. I do some consultation work for legal cases where I testify as an expert witness on the effects of domestic violence on children and the way that trauma uh, kind of impacts those relationships. Wow. <laughs> I wear a lot of hats. <laughs> um, all right, so obviously you'll be an authoritative person to talk about uh, about trauma and explain it to you, but please dumb it down for all, sure. so all of us can understand. Yeah, so I think you know trauma is something that is so fascinating and complex uh, and I think a lot of people don't fully understand it, but essentially what trauma is, is it's an experience that is very scary, uh, potentially life-threatening that someone experiences um, that oftentimes can leave them feeling hopeless or like they couldn't do anything about it. And that's what really creates this traumatic response in a lot of people uh, is the sense of hopeless, hopelessness and the sense of danger. So we have kind of what we call single incident traumas, which is something like a car accident or something where it happened one time and it might happen again, but it's not necessarily likely. There's no pattern. There's no pattern, exactly. Versus something that's chronic or complex ongoing trauma. And that might be something like child abuse, domestic violence. Um, if you are you know, in combat, kind of ongoing combat scenarios, things like that, where you're being re-traumatized over and over, uh, and knowing that likely that trauma is gonna happen again. And so the ways that those traumas impact you is a little bit different, um, because one, something like a car accident, 
again, you're not necessarily worried it's going to happen again. And unless someone crashed into you on purpose, there isn't a violation of a relationship. Right. It's something that happened. It was scary. Maybe you got hurt, but you're going to be probably okay. Uh, versus someone abusing you or hurting you on purpose. There's a violation of that relationship, especially when it's a, a parent or caregiver or a, you know, a significant other. There's supposed to be trust. There's supposed to be safety. And that violation of it is really shattering to the self. And so what we know about trauma is that it actually rewires your neurology and your brain and the way that your brain functions, the way that your body functions. When you experience a traumatic event, your body's alarm system goes off. And that is an evolutionary alarm system that we have that is supposed to exist to keep us safe. Um, so we have a part of our brain called the thalamus. It takes in stimuli via all of your senses. And it has to process very quickly in a matter of milliseconds whether or not you're in danger. And so there's two ways that that can happen. One is what they call the high road, which is where it goes through your frontal cortex and it's processed and then goes to your amygdala, which is what stores, uh, which uh, creates emotional responses and helps you integrate that memory. And so that memory integration happens with a little bit more accuracy, but it's slower than kind of the low road where it goes straight from that thalamus that takes in the stimuli over to the amygdala that creates emotional responses and it skips the cortex and it's quicker by milliseconds, but those are precious milliseconds when you're in danger. So that kind of low road creates a less accurate, less full picture of your experience and really just kind of leaves you with the terror and danger piece. And the emotional response that comes are the kind of traumatic responses that, that we might see. So when something happens in the future that is similar to that stimuli, similar sight, similar sound, similar smell, similar experience, that low road activates and you have those same emotional responses instead of going over that high road and really being able to process the thought completely and the memory completely. So those traumatic responses include uh, hypervigilance, so not you know being very easily startled, not sure um, when the next danger is going to come, so you're kind of constantly on alert for it. It can include things like nightmares and flashbacks, really reliving these traumatic experiences and feeling like you are having that experience again, even when you're safe. Um, it, is, it affects cognition. So the way that you can, your brain functions, the way that you can say and do things. Um, and even what we've, what has been found in, the, in studies that have been done is that someone who is experiencing a traumatic flashback can have symptoms that overlap with someone who suffered a stroke. Their ability to speak, the area of their brain that controls speech, is darkened and is not as activated as the limbic system, which is the emotional brain. So, in a way, you are saying that they're more likely to freeze. They're, they're more likely to freeze. They're more likely to, yeah, essentially be paralyzed by that experience, even if they're not in danger again. So they may feel that they're in danger again, even when they're safe, because there's some stimuli that is, this is happening unconsciously for them, right? Subconsciously, this stimuli comes in, their brain is working on its own. And it's working based off of this new brain map instead of the original brain map before the trauma. And so they're at the mercy of that process. And I have a colleague uh, at work that says that you get hijacked by your limbic system, which is your emotional brain. You're at the mercy of that emotional brain and you're not really in control of your actions, including your fight, flight, freeze response. You mentioned that 
it affects your, your brain, that is the biological response, and it's like this whole thing that's going on in like milliseconds that we yeah. have absolutely no control over. So how, how can anyone have a, a hope? Yeah, so, I mean, I'll, ideally we'd prevent these things from happening, and when we can't, there are trauma treatments. And so, a lot of times you hear about kind of psycho, talk psychotherapy, and that is a, a helpful treatment for, tra for trauma. Uh, there are also specific evidence-based modalities. So, for instance, I'm trained and certified in something called trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, TFCBT for short. And that is a kind of combination of approaches that is structured specifically for people with trauma that creates a trauma narrative in the end. And in learning skills for regulation, learning about trauma and the way it affects you and being aware of your triggers and things like that, and then creating a trauma narrative and processing the memory, you can actually reintegrate it with lessened impact, with more adaptive or kind of more positive responses, and it has less power over you, that, that memory, that experience. So <clears throat> for something that happened within sometimes even just a second, right, like a car accident, and lasted for maybe 10 seconds, now we needed a couple of years worth of work. You could, right? So it depends on your experience of it. So a, a really good example is when I was about five years old, I was in a car accident with my, uh, my abuelo, my grandfather. And luckily, neither of us got seriously injured. He sustained kind of a minor injury. I don't remember anything about that day leading up to the accident, but the accident itself is burned in my memory. I remember every moment of it. And the reason that I didn't have a long-lasting trauma response for it from it, I believe, was partly because neither of us got seriously injured. I was well taken care of by the adults around me after, both the ones immediately at the scene and when I was taken home. I was taken home to a loving household with parents who were there to support me. And because there was not a kind of worse outcome, I was able to move on from that in a few weeks, a few months, I remember being shaky in cars. I remember having an, a reaction to it, but it was not, you know, I'm 35 now. I'm not afraid to get in cars. I'm not afraid to drive. I don't still carry that with me, but that memory is burned into my mind. Yeah. So th that situation, I didn't need years of therapy for that, but think about someone who maybe they lost their loved one in that car accident or they got severely injured or it was a very gruesome scene. They might need something very different or if they went home and there was no one there to support them right no adults no people that took them in and provided them the love support and scaffolding uh, structure and kind of um, support that they needed to recover from that in the short term so all of those things impact how one person experiences trauma so how I experienced that car accident is different than a, a kid who is in a household with neglect or a household where um, someone in that family was lost in that car accident so that's kind of what, what determines some of that. And then also if we have like chronic ongoing trauma, like we talked about, that's something that really takes a long time to unravel. So I have many, many examples of trauma. Sure. Uh, but one very interesting trauma was uh, just having Lyme. Right? Yeah. So this woman had Lyme and kind of wiped out half of her brain. Right? So she was not able to articulate herself anymore. So she really lost a lot of her ability to, to work and because she still seemed functioning people didn't believe her and that created the PTSD yeah so that's a, a completely different example to PTSD but yet another 
very valid option. So how what would be the the approach we're doing with uh, people who essentially nothing seemingly that happened, right? It was like small snippets of like I don't believe you or like I just question you or you know, and everybody bring their past to the situation. So every every discussion that she had, she's like, well I think he doesn't believe me, right? And I know she is like self inflicting pain in a situation that might be even like there's no problem here, but but she may create the problems because she you know, she perpetuates it, right? So I would ask two questions. How do you deal with it from the clinical point of view and how does the math Definitely. So I think ultimately healing relationships are at the core of trauma healing. Um, so whether it's talk therapy, whether it's, you know, art therapy, dance therapy, movement, crab, whatever it is, whatever is helping this person heal, the relationship between the person who is providing that service and the person who's receiving that service is going to be paramount. So there needs to be safety and trust and a lack of judgment. And so if you start there with, for instance, your student, someone who is able to validate her experiences and, and not necessarily have to challenge at first whether or not these things actually happened, because it doesn't matter at first. Her experience is that these things happened, and that's how her brain and her body and everything is reacting. So rather than kind of challenge that and say, that's not what's happening, that person didn't mean that, where you're perpetuating the idea that she's kind of already has in her head and that is probably based in some amount of real experience, instead saying, you feel like no one believes you, right? And sticking with her experience and being able to build on that to help her build that internal resilience. So that happens in that relationship. It happens in being able to meet people where they're at, which is a huge part of trauma treatment as well, is not deciding that there's a one-size-fits-all model. So regardless of what your trauma is, I can't just decide we're going to start at this level up here, right? I have to help them get to a place where they can tolerate it. And so we start by kind of an incremental approach to exposure to the trauma, to even discussing it. I have clients I've talked to for months before they'll even go near the trauma. I let them know that I know about it so that they don't think that it's this big, big secret in the room. But I start very light by just getting to know them and creating trust and safety. And I think that in Krav, regardless of whether you're doing this in a trauma-informed way, there should be trust and safety when you're an instructor with a mat full of students. Um, this is something where if people do it wrong, they can hurt each other. And so it's important to have a relationship with your students where they feel safe in your class, safe with you, and where their traumas, whether invisible or not, can be something that they either share with you or process with you and feel held in that way. To be fair, I don't think there's anyone walking on this planet without some form of trauma. Oh, I agree. Right, past the age of 10. So, right. Yeah. So, I mean, but, but that leads me to a, a different question, right? Because we can dive very, very, very deep into the how you teach trauma-informed or mm -hmm. not. Um, how you teach on the mat, you, the instructor has so many responsibilities whether they understand it or not, but that would have to be a different uh, yeah. episode. Um, the trauma is, uh, is an unseen injury, and everybody have this manifested in, in different ways. That some have really big injuries, some small injuries. Some, something small happened, but they, they feel it's very much amplified because they didn't have any way to cope with it, and it's also been ignored. We talked before we started recording about uh, 
how the new generation doesn't know how to cope because everything is a big deal, right? And so there, there is the negotiation, like who has the permission to feel it and, and how much, right? Because if I'm not resilient, if something small happened, I would still feel it very big, right? And I would treat it as if it's big, but in an absolute value, like considering the national and international trauma level that people will suffer from, it's almost nothing, right? But I feel the same, right? So from the point of view of the you know, anybody else, right, especially those who suffered one or two things that are actually significant, all I can see is, like, well, you drop your ice cream, so what? Right? So then I don't give them the permission to feel it, right? Because I get annoyed that they are not dealing with it, right? And I would add to it that it's also in, in this younger generation, in general, the style of parenting was to try to prevent them from feeling so many failures, so many traumas, and then eventually they, they get no ability to carry themselves out in the world. Right. So I think that's, uh, we live in a world that so often operates in all or nothing thinking. And this is something that is fairly universal. People fall into this all the time. It is more likely in people who are traumatized and people with mental health issues. But, you know, I've, I've been working on my own all or nothing thinking for years. I still catch myself in it from time to time. People think that it has to be one way or the other. So either, you know, the kid drops their ice cream and you say, suck it up, there's no problem, you can't cry, it's not a big deal. Or you buy them six ice creams so that when they drop one, you can hand them another. Right? And there's something that, there's so much in between that. There's so much in between we completely prevent any possible disappointment ever from happening to any kid. And we make kids feel badly because they have a very understandable response, especially when their brains are so young and still developing, to something that's really upsetting to them. And to them at their age feels like the end of the world. Um, and that there's a way to, to be in between and say, that's really disappointing, right? That's, oh, you really wanted your ice cream. That's so sad. Let's see what we can do about it. Let's problem solve together. And parenting doesn't come in a manual. <laughs> exactly, right? And when you were parented by someone that said, tough it up, you know, like just tough it out. It's not a big deal. That's what you take on. So you either make the decision to perpetuate what you learned, what how you were parented, or you make the decision to change that because you didn't like it. And some people, you know, go to extremes with that too. So what we know about child development, and, and that is, you know, my specialty is working with children. We know that we want to prevent huge traumas, right? If we can, we want to prevent huge traumas because we know that that does big damage to the brain and to the body and to their development and their attachment and their relationships and their functioning in life. We don't want to prevent every little tiny thing that can happen to them because like you said, then they don't build any ability to cope, any resilience, any ability to, to handle things not going their way or disappointment. Discomforts in general. It's, yes. And so we think about this as scaffolding where you create structures where kids can fail or feel disappointment and you're there to help them through it instead of kind of leaving them, right? We're not tossing them in the deep end, but we're not letting them, you know, play in the kiddie pool. Maybe we're putting them in the pool with some floaties on and we're there also in case they start to struggle. So it's something where they can start to build the skill on their own, but they're not doing it completely alone um, because they're, they don't know how to do that. That's why adults exist in a child's life is to help 
provide them with support, with love, and with teaching in a way that helps them then build themselves. And what you should, what we hope to see in child development is that as the kid gets older, the scaffolding shifts, right? So what you do for a two-year-old is very different than what you do for a 15-year-old. And that's very different than what you do for your adult child. So I think one of the struggles that people have when they're in this all-or-nothing thinking is that they treat their two-year-old in one way and then they treat their 15-year-old in that same way, as if that 15-year-old has gained no skills, no knowledge, no independence, no sense of self or identity. And so you can't parent a teenager like you do a toddler. You're going to end up with a teenager who's a toddler and then who an adult who's a toddler. So it's about being able to be flexible and shift as the needs of that child shifts. And that it's not just the direct caregiver, right? It's not just the parent or the adults in that child's lives. It's the system. It's the schools. It's the programs that these kids go to. Being able to manage those extremes and try to sit in the in-between, which people don't like because it's uncomfortable to not be certain one way or the other or to kind of have to navigate an uncertain course. So, okay, so granted, trauma is something, that it's an event that happened and there's a, a physical and emotional response to it. Mm -hmm. So we, we understand that there's a very clear relationship with it, what things that happen to, to how we, we navigate from that point, right? It's, a, it's like, a, it's a breaking. But this generation, this is not just this generation, I would say like, especially post-COVID now, the word anxiety is kind of all across the board. You hear it from everyone, everywhere, and also you see it a lot more clearly on the mat, like people are absolutely anxious, not breathing, hyper-reacting, like there's absolutely no regulation, right? And then I oftentimes converse with people that are, you know, and they're like between 20 to 30 years old, and I ask them like, why? Are you so anxious, right? Is that anything happen? And people that I'm close enough with that, you know, they would tell me stories that were sensitive, right? Nothing happened. I don't know why I'm so anxious. I'm just like wired this way. So I came to realize that it became uncool not to be anxious, right? Like, and they borrowing anxiety from their friends because that's just the way they run now. Right? And nothing necessarily happened to them, but this kind of thing in the near. It's interesting. I mean, I think we definitely saw that when COVID hit, mental health issues rose, undeniably. People were isolated, cut off from their relationships, fearful for their you know, physical health, fearful for the physical health of their loved ones, watching the different ways that different places handled this, um, and watching mass death on a daily basis in a modern world where you have a 24-hour news cycle. And so you're inundated with this information, which in some ways is great. You can be really well informed. And in other ways is terrible because there's no break from it. And so that actually can contribute to mental health issues. If you're constantly taking information about death and destruction and war and poverty and fighting and all this stuff. Um, so there definitely was a rise in mental health needs. Um, our clinic became overrun. Our wait list was out the, out the door. Like it was rough. Um, and, and the mental health field also as an aside is so understaffed and so underfunded that that also exacerbated it. I do think that because we have not had, not quite yet had a full generation that is well versed in the vocabulary and the ideas of mental health issues of all 
gradients, right, across that spectrum. So not just severe, serious mental health issues that we think of when we think of someone who's, you know, seriously unwell, but also things like that you can experience anxiety without having kind of a disorder, like an anxiety disorder, right? That there is, you can experience depressive symptoms without having major depression, that you can have feelings, that feelings exist for everyone. And that the more that we ignore them and deny them, the more that they feel like they're in control of us instead of we're in control of them. Because if you ignore that sadness or you ignore that anxiety or you ignore that fear and you push it aside, it's still there. It didn't go anywhere. And it kind of rears its head in a, in like a redoubled effort. And then it feels overwhelming and it feels like you can't cope. And so if you have the skills to cope with it or the support network to cope with it or an outlet for it, it is easier to manage when it pops up. And you might not feel so much like, I don't know, I just have this anxiety, right? You're not so hijacked in that way. You are more in control and more able to say, oh, yeah, I know I feel anxious about this, but like, I'm okay, right? I, I'm someone, I'm not really very prone to anxiety. There are things that make me feel anxious. I know what those things are. I can recognize when it's happening and I have tools to cope with it. So I don't find myself to be an anxious person, but that doesn't mean I don't experience anxiety. For sure. So that's the distinction I think that people don't fully know what these terms mean. And so they'll just say, well, this is what's happening, right? Because they, they feel out of control and that's scary. I feel people are, they are trauma informed, right? And anxiety informed, but they don't really know what it is, right? Mm -hmm. They just like they, they love using this word, and like this is a huge umbrella with like, so many differences, right? And the more you understand, the more you realize how much you don't know about it, and they just easily carry this like, themselves under this umbrella. It's like this, this it becomes an excuse. I don't have to be good at anything because I feel traumatized. I feel anxious. Right. I, I think I don't. I don't have trauma. I don't have anxiety. I do have. I do feel anxious sometimes. I'm not an anxious person, but I do have some feelings as like, oh my God, like, this is just overwhelming for me right now. Yeah. But I cope with it, right? Because I, I know it's not the end of the world. Right? I breathe it out. I'll move it out. It will be okay. Right? Nothing, no reaction under stress that is not trained will be a, the best reaction. Right? Most times, slow down, it will be a way better reaction. Definitely. And that's, again, when you're kind of at the mercy of your brain, it's hard to slow it down. These are things that are happening in milliseconds, as we said. So definitely your stress response is not your best response. And you are able to build a better stress response for sure. I do think that something I always say about trauma, and especially for people who uh, are kind of taking their trauma out on other people, is I always say that trauma or any life experience can be an explanation for your behavior, but it is not an excuse for your behavior. And I think that's where people don't always make a distinction. That they might say, look, this, you know, I, I act this way because this is what happened to me, I'm working on it, or I'm, you know, this is how I make sure it doesn't affect other people. And then there are other people who say, well, I'm traumatized, or I'm, you know, this is what happened to me, so this is how I act. And they expect other people to be okay with them treating them poorly, or lashing out at them, or not functioning in their relationships at work, at whatever it is. And that's the distinction that I make, is I say, like, so if someone hurt you, that was not your fault, right? That person chose to hurt you. You did not ask for that. You did not deserve that. It is not your fault. If you then hurt someone else because someone hurt you, that is your fault. Because it is on you, unfortunately, 
the burden becomes on you to then heal from that so that you can become a person that doesn't hurt others, right? Or a person that doesn't lash out at others or a person that can function in the world that we live in. I want to say that, like, yes, life is unfair. Yeah. <laughs> something happened to you that wasn't yes. fair. Now it's on you. Whether you want it or not, whether it's fair or not. Right. And so that, that is what I'm talking about. That's the validation and then the accountability, right? The validation is that it was unfair. That shouldn't have happened to you. I wish that hadn't happened to you. You are, it's completely understandable why you feel the way that you feel and why you have these reactions. And now here we have to do something about it. Here's how I can be a part of that. Here's how you can be a part of that. But I can't do it for you. And so in therapy, I often say to clients, um, especially kind of the more traumatized ones, that I'm only a piece of it. I'm not, so I, I wish I had some magic wand. I could just kind of heal everybody. I work myself out of a job. It'd be great. I can't do that. I can't go into somebody's brain and just change something for them. What I can do is be a part of that process as long as they show up as well, as long as they're willing to do their part to build the relationship, to work through the discomfort, to tolerate the symptoms that come up, the anxiety, the stress, the, the flooding. Um, and so I think that, again, like, you know, you and I are talking about the way that this generation navigates things. And I think it's about, we've kind of gone from saying, you're not allowed to have any feelings, to you can have feelings without any kind of accountability or action. And what we're trying to get to is somewhere in the middle. You are allowed to have feelings and you have to be accountable for your actions. Let's figure out how to hold space for those feelings and allow you to heal and get what you were missing when you experienced this difficult, challenging, traumatic thing. And how do you move forward in a way that is adaptive, a way that is helpful for you and others? I feel a really healthy way of moving forward is first you have to hold yourself in high regards. Right? You have to really respect yourself and believe you're worthy of getting better and not getting, not staying low. And also, see yourself as the hero of your own life. You, are the, you write the story, you are the hero, right? You are not like this uh, side character who supports the hero. And when you see yourself as the hero, then you would do everything for this hero to thrive and succeed. And that's a big deal. Um, and I recently came across a study that supports what I said, which is kind of phenomenal. One of the students sent it to me. But that's what I've always been saying. You have to put yourself in the center of that stage. It's your stage. Everybody has a stage. It's your stage. It's your job to become the best you can do, the best you can be. And yes, it means you're going to have to deal with a lot of difficult things. Um, but when difficult things happen, in fact, those are reminders, sometimes just to have proportion. Okay, that's not the end of the world. My life is still okay, right? So it builds up resilience, and not we're not born with the ability to cope with everything, right? I mean, some 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 yes. I mean, we talked about DNA, how how trauma passes DNA, and also resilience can pass through it uh, in some ways. And what I can say, kind of from there, is that we've talked about like the different kinds of trauma, and I think trauma really became more well known as it pertains to combat veterans, right? That's really where people started to think trauma might actually be a thing because for so long it was kind of dismissed as weak-minded people get traumatized when we, what I just said, right? Like 
your brain has a function that then gets messed up by this experience. And when they were war vets, these, you know, big, tough people, finally, it was like, oh, maybe this isn't about mental fortitude. Maybe there's something else happening. But that's one piece, right? And then we have interpersonal violence and we have kind of those single incident traumas like car accidents and illness and stuff like that. So we have to think about the ways that these different traumas impact how someone shows up. And so something like interpersonal violence, especially, we're talking, you know, domestic violence, child abuse, sexual assault, it shatters self-esteem and sense of self. And so seeing yourself as the hero of your story or seeing yourself as someone who deserves these things is actually really hard um, and is something that can take years to rebuild, if at all. People who experience this can also feel so disconnected from their bodies. I, I've, I've worked with a client who tells me she looks in the mirror and she doesn't recognize herself. She can't recognize her own face. She's so disconnected from who she is and her body because of decades of various kinds of, of trauma. So this is where I think something like Krav comes in to really be able to rebuild that sense of self, that empowerment, that idea that you are deserving of space, of bodily autonomy, of respect, um, in getting that from your instructor, of getting that from your fellow students. And you have to kind of ease into that because you have someone who doesn't think that way at all. Um, when I, before I worked where I work now, I, I spent about four years um, post-grad working in a gender-based violence organization. So I worked with um, children and youth who had been exposed to domestic violence. Um, sometimes their, their parents were sex trafficked. Um, and I did some different groups there, uh, incorporating CROV into social work. So I had to think about who, how do these people with different experiences of this situation react based on this? And I had the teens that I was working with where they were watching a lot of this violence and also experiencing community violence. A lot of them were kids of color, and so they were also experiencing racial trauma and all sorts, and intergenerational trauma. I mean, the list goes on and on. And they were raring to fight. These kids constantly wanted to fight. There was a lot of aggression. Not all of them, of course, but there were a lot of them that were looking for fights, and if somebody looked at them wrong or somebody said something, they had to fight because that was what was in their control. And so with them, when I did a prog kind of workshop, we worked a lot on de-escalation and being in control of your body and being able to, to not give your control to the other person and allow them to manipulate you. So I want to just throw one, one thought into this because many parents especially don't want to indulge their kids, like don't want to indulge their the behavior. So it's like, no, 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 because they are violent, because they have a, a, a tendency be you know more physical than other kids or what I would wish them to be, then I would not enroll them into any kind of martial arts because that will teach them how to do what they do better. Right. So I, I, I hear that concern, right? It, it, logically, it makes sense. But what we realize is that this aggression has nowhere to go except to other people. And there's underlying issues that are causing that aggression. So, you know, I would really recommend trying to figure out what those underlying causes are. But in terms of the physical aspect of it, you have these teens who feel so out of control of their lives, so out of control of their bodies, that if you can give them a sense of control back and help them understand that when somebody else goes them into a fight, they've actually given up all their control. Right? And that's true of anybody any age. I, I definitely worked with adults 
who I've talked to, you know, in that same way, and especially men who are conditioned in this society to have to, like, you know, stand up for themselves and be really tough and show how tough they are. And, you know, the toughest men that I know in this world have never had to tell anybody that they're tough. They've never had to show how tough they are. They just are that way. And they're actually really gentle people who, I'm, who I hold in such high esteem. And so these kids, these teens, are learning that lesson, essentially, when they're in a setting with someone who is able to, to teach them in this way, right? So if you have an instructor who is also kind of that mindset, that's a really bad combination. But if you have an instructor who understands that aggression, fighting, is a last resort, that there's so much else to do before you get there, and that, yes, it's important to have those skills. You might find yourself in a situation where you need to use them. But the, I think the best craft practitioners are the ones who never, ever have to use their skills they're fighting skills, I should say, because they've used their other crop skills. They've used their awareness and prevention skills. They've used their de-escalation skills. They carry themselves a certain way. Um, and so teaching these teens about that and ways to allow themselves to extricate themselves from the situation without feeling like they have given something up and sacrificed their ego or their toughness or their street cred or whatever it is, is an important piece. That's also really distinct from the adult survivors of violence that I was working with. These were women who were abused by their partners, trafficked um, in the sex trade, and they were so disconnected from their bodies, so traumatized, wouldn't take up space, couldn't make noise. Um, and so the focus on with them was taking up space, was being loud, was learning that no is a complete sentence, that they don't have to explain why they want a right to their body or why they have boundaries or why they don't want someone to touch them. Um, and then also learning some physical skills to feel embodied, right, and to feel empowered. So learning some strikes, not necessarily because I thought after one workshop they were going to walk out and be able to defend themselves, but because they were able to start seeing themselves a little bit differently. And so the focus of those two was very different. Um, and I heard from the women that were in this, I, I did two groups, one in English and one in Spanish. And I heard from them that their experiences of just being able to like move their body in this powerful way or to like shout or to take up space and that they were doing it also as a group of other people who had experienced the same or similar things was really empowering. Um, and it was something that I, you know, I wish I could have done an ongoing program and, you know, nonprofits being what they are. It's just, it's tough to do all of the things you want to do. Um, there isn't time. Uh, but thinking about the ways that this manifests differently in different people and knowing that you're getting a whole mix of people on your map. So being able to have some blanket trauma-informed practices that you have, like especially when I work with teens um, or if I teach a women's self-defense seminar, I'm asking before I touch someone if I'm going to offer a physical correction. Um, I'm thinking about how I'm uh, like delivering feedback um, I always tell people try to eliminate the word but from your vocabulary and use and instead because nobody hears what you said before but. So I say that was really good and I want you to try this, right? Not that was really good but this because someone who already has a shattered sense of self-esteem hears, I did it badly. So it's all these little pieces that then can make a really big impact when especially if you have an ongoing relationship with the people who have experienced this. You've been teaching men. What is your experience with teaching men in terms of self-esteem, right? So like teaching men and experiencing how they're experiencing themselves versus women, right? In my experience, if zooming out, it's not, uh, you know, 
Men tend to overestimate their skills and their ability to perform something, and women tend to underestimate it, even though they might do something amazing, and they still pick themselves up for not being perfect, right? And the thing that they would give permission for others not to be perfect, and they would be okay being on the receiving end of pain, but they wouldn't want to inflict the pain. Right. With men, it's less of a problem, at least from what I experienced. So I wonder if, what your experience in those specific programs, as well as you know, being on for-profit, open gym style, is there, is there any difference between the two? Or tell me more about how your observation. So when we talk about the difference between men and women on the mat, I think we, it comes, part of it comes to gender norms and the way that gender norms are conditioned in society uh, or have been traditionally conditioned in society. And so the idea that, that women are supposed to be quieter and meeker and not take up space and the way that men are conditioned to take up space and be the ones that fight and um, kind of that the acceptable emotions for women are like sadness and fear and the acceptable emotions for men are ang is anger, right? So there isn't kind of the ability to feel all these different things. So when it shows up on the mat, I think it you can see a woman perhaps withdraw and kind of underestimate herself like you are saying and hold herself to this really high uh, threshold and expectation because society does, right? Um, and then you have men who are also oftentimes when they are kind of posturing and boasting and showing how good they are, it comes from insecurity also. Um, I've never met a person, regardless of gender, who tells me how great they are at something and thought they're probably really great at that thing. If you have to say it, you're not nearly as good at it as you think you are. And it comes from the insecurity and the desire to be better at it. And we've all been there, right? Like, I think about the way that I was many years ago, and I was probably doing a lot of those same things. And I have grown as a person and really recognized all my areas for growth, and, and I know what my strengths are. I also don't need to tell everybody what my strengths are. Um, so when it comes to men, I think that because there hasn't been a space for them to be vulnerable in a really like societally accepted way for them to have flaws and to be able to have kind of a softer side traditionally they have to show up with aggression or they have to show up that's all that's allowed um, instead of them being able to say that they they're not sure if they're going to be good at this right they're working on this other thing um, they kind of have to be perfect but women also have to be perfect in a different way um, so I really, I, I've liked what I've seen in terms of the way that society has shifted and especially living in New York city that is very progressive. Um, and me being, you know, a woman who's done martial arts for more than half my life, um, that, you know, I've had people be very surprised when they find out kind of the other half of my life, right? I'm on the mats and they find out that, you know, I was in a sorority in college and that, I like dresses and high heels and sometimes I even wear makeup. And then when they see me out and about and they find out that I do prob and that I sweat on the mats and I you know, have bled and all this stuff, it, it doesn't fit. Um, and so I think trying to help men and women break out of this, these boxes that they've been put into is such an important part of it because they really are, it's a detriment to everybody. Um, and so men are stuck within this expectation that they can only feel anger, that anger can only be exhibited through aggression and outburst, and that they have to be really good at these physical things, or else, like, quote-unquote, what kind of man are they? Um, and that 
I mean, I could do an entire separate episode on the idea of like what is masculinity and what does it really mean to be a man? What do we think of as a, as a society and all of that? You and Annie together. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, I really liked her, her episode. Um, so, yeah. So, I think it's like that masculinity, femininity, and all that is in between is complex and complicated. It's not one thing. But that's, again, that all or nothing world that we live in that everybody feels comfortable in instead of the in-between where people can be more than one thing. People can uh, break out of that kind of binary box that the world feels comfortable having them in. Um, I do think that for men it's harder to be open to that because they've been conditioned that they have to be this way. Um, I, I, I thought about that when I first started teaching Krav. I thought about what will it be like for me as at that point I was, I was 25 walking into a room full of men, some of whom are going to be older, different generation, different experiences, different expectations, will they want to learn from me? Will they think I know what I'm talking about? And I think I felt a little bit of needing to show that I knew what I was talking about. And what I realized was once I started teaching, they knew I knew what I was talking about and they learned from me. And I developed wonderful relationships with so many of them and I became close with them. Um, those were also the ones that allowed that. And there were the men that I'm sure has happened, you know, throughout your career as well, that didn't last because they really needed to be the best in the room and they needed to be the most aggressive in the room. And there just isn't space for that in this field, in the, in the crowd. Yeah, I just find it exhausting if you yeah. always have to prove yourself yeah. and, and to kind of outmatch everyone else whether it's yeah. with your brain or with your body. I mean, you're going to end up injured regardless of what you wish right? yeah. because you are overdoing it and you're not allowing yourself to learn. You have to empty your cup, right? So Bruce Lee said very wisely, he said the, the only, the best use of the cup is when it's empty because otherwise you can't use it. Definitely. And I think that that, you know, it also comes from how you were raised, right? Were you raised to be a learner? Were you raised to know that you have strengths and you also have areas you're going to work on? That this, which I, you know, I try not to call them weaknesses because I think that that has such a negative connotation that people just, they shut down when they hear that word. But it's true. I mean, I, mean, I don't like to apologize for the truth, right? And so we can say weakness yes. and we can also call it vulnerabilities because sure. those are also vulnerabilities. But the, the word vulnerability scares me more than than. Weakness, right? Because weakness, something can be improved. Vulnerability is a little bit harder to fix. Totally. I mean, I think, you know, in social work and in my practice, I come from a strength-based approach and I found that to be really, really effective. And so this idea that if you can think of something as an area for growth, it means that it is a weakness, right? It also means that there's room to improve as opposed to this is just how it is. It, you know, it, it, that strengths and weaknesses to me falls into that all or nothing thinking. It falls into finite labels as opposed to you can be good at these things and you can work on these things and you might never be they might never become a strength it still doesn't mean you can't work on it um I, you know even in Krav, you have people who are you know better at kicks better at strikes with their hands better at defenses better at takedowns i'm someone i can deal with the ground if i get there but i hate being on the ground it is not my strong suit i'm not a ground fighter i don't like takedowns i can do them they're not my strength. I have excellent roundhouse kicks, and especially to the head, which is something not a lot of people can do. So that's something where I'm like, I know that I have this strength in this area, 
this other area, it doesn't mean I'm going to stop doing it. It just means I don't need to, I don't need to expect that I'm going to eventually get to the place where I can do it the same as my roundhouse kick. But I can still continue to improve. I shouldn't shy away from it just because I'm not as good at it as something else. But in this world where we want, yeah, exactly, right? I shouldn't put more time into it. But in this world where we want people to be good or bad at things, and we want them to be the best at things, it can feel like, oh, I, I'm not doing this well, I should stop. And I think it's that I think that's especially true for men who are, I, I think, I, I can't really speak for this, or maybe you can, but I would imagine that for men, the way that society has conditioned them, if they're not good at something, that is a huge blow to the ego. Whereas women, I think, we've been more conditioned to be criticized and to feel like maybe... Maybe I'm not good at this thing, and that's just kind of how it is. I'll feel bad about it internally. <laughs> I think we're overgeneralizing the, the gender uh, roles here and like what people experience, especially in the past, let's say, 10, 15 years. Yes, it's shifted. But, so men in general, I, I believe, yes, they do want to excel well, but it's not everyone. And I see it in the past decade. I see this less and less. 100%. Um, and women don't believe that they can be good. A yeah. lot of them don't believe that they can be good. Right? And then they're so surprised when they can. It's like, oh my God. And then, and then there is like that, that shift. Right? And that's why um, the, you see so many women that are so loyal to, to training because mm -hmm. they, they experience such a major shift. They suddenly get a binocular that shows them everything a lot bigger and clearer. Yeah. It's like, oh, I can. And I didn't know I, 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 in the million years that I could be strong. I could feel or not feel scared, right? Or feel other things instead of fear, right? So that's a, a very empowering feeling, which obviously goes beyond the man, right? Because then it empowers you to do other things in life and demand better relationships. Just yesterday, I had a conversation with a student who, uh, she told me about the, this new guy that she's dating, and I said, is that the same kind of prototype that you used to date before training said no it's a new guy it's a new type and she's only been training for four or five months yeah. so now I'm I found a doer because she became a lot more demanding of her space and like more, more confident and she realized that she doesn't have to be with someone who doesn't um, you know look forward right and, 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 and try to do hard things right yeah no that mindset I mean I think Starting Krav changed my mindset as well, and becoming an instructor changed my mindset. The way that that what you do on the mat affects how you carry yourself, how you think about yourself, how you see yourself, it's it's real. And it, I think that's part of why, and that's why it can be part of healing. Because if you can shift how you see yourself, then you can expect different things from yourself, and others can expect different things from you. And I think... Absolutely. I, you know, when we talk about gender norms being overgeneralized because we're talking kind of traditionally what's the expectation and the pressure that exists, even if that's not how the person feels, that the external pressure that exists. I agree with you. There's been this shift. And I think that for, for women trying to find more of that ability to take up space, to have bodily autonomy, to want things for themselves, um, to look for a partner instead of someone that they're going to maybe take care of, right? Um, all of that is, I think, impacted by lots of aspects of their life, including the training that they might do on the mat. And so being around people who um, support them in this, being with instructors who help build them up, and then them having success is a huge part of that. It also comes with having 
quote-unquote failures on the mat, right? Like struggling to do things or having to try over and over and over until it clicks. Um, but those, those moments of click, those moments of shift where there's um, something really kind of comes together, I think can be hugely powerful and impactful. Yeah, I think the mat is the, one of the generators of, of that shift. And it's a, it's a cycle that feeds itself. Like I'm stronger, so I can do more, I can do more, I'm stronger. Yeah. And, and it's a positive look rather than I can't, so I won't try, and then I, I can do even less, and I deserve yeah. even less. So it, it's, a, it's a positive shift that just like training people in, in feelings, right, yeah. which I believe should be trained in a young age. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I can, I can go deep into that. <laughs> but, but people need to be trained in how to defend themselves. So personal safety isn't an issue, and it's like survival isn't an issue. How you process your your thoughts and your feelings and like and what causes what, right? If you look at babies, babies have one way to communicate, right? Like one simple way, they cry. That's it, right? And then slowly as they grow, their brain allows them a bit more ways to communicate, like from, from smiling and touching, and then there's more and more and more. Um, and then eventually it's supposed to be communicating with, with naming the feelings, right? And I feel like a lot of grown-ups don't know how to do that, right? So they, everything falls under the same the same category, and therefore everything gets the same reaction. Yeah. Right? And that's kind of goes back to what you said in the beginning, and the, the, the trauma that once you your brain is now uh, funneled to believe everything is a threat, yeah. then it's a threat. Right, right. And I think that that's, I, I mean, I agree with you. I have so many, I, I worked primarily with children for, for the majority of my career so far, and there was a lot of teaching them about feelings. But I also have adult clients where I'll say, well, you know, this thing happened, how did you feel? And they'll give me a thought, right? They'll say, well, I was thinking, I said, how do you feel? And I'll have to ask them four or five times before they finally find a feeling. And it shifts then how we can talk about that thing. Because feelings are not what's taught, thinking is. And, and cognition feels safer than emotion. Um, and so on the mats, there is thinking, right? There is that component. There's also a lot of emotion and a lot of embodiment. And you, you don't get to think through all of that. You don't have the, the left logical side of your brain in charge the whole time. You really have to involve other other parts of you and other aspects that feel less accessible and so I think it brings it to the surface and maybe makes things more more accessible to you and I think when it comes to you know you were speaking about for women that kind of cycle of being able to succeed and feel stronger so then they do more and so on I think for men being able to fail and not be ridiculed or criticized or judged being able to fail on the matter not not do something super well and be kind of built up and supported for them to realize like that's okay we've all been there we're all going to be there again um, and you don't have to be the best at this to be good at this or to get what you need from it and um, so that cycle similarly for men I think can uh, can really help them develop kind of in the way that they're looking for I think that the kind of people that come to my mats are a bit different I think there's Chromaga experts at least don't attract this like weekend warrior, super yeah. high testosterone kind of people. Like there are people that are more level than like more intellectuals. Uh, we have a lot of professors here. We have a lot of doctors. Like that's the kind of people that come here, which they already had proven some level of, of um, stick to itness. Yeah, right? and they know that they have to fail to get there, right? Like they, you can't stick with something without feeling failure, right? So 
the, the level of testosterone that the met here is under control yeah. and, and self-contained as well as the, the room contained it very well. <clears throat> and also everybody knows that I have a line that shouldn't be crossed. They, that's very clear for everyone, uh, including to myself, like there's certain things I'm not willing to, to, to tolerate. Um, and that helps me, like knowing what my, my lines are, manage it well. Right, so yeah. I know what's the range that is acceptable, right? And maybe three times in the history of the uh, in my career, I had to tell people, "Well, you cannot come back here." Right. Three of them were women. <laughs> yeah. Not men. Yeah, I believe it. I, and that's again where so like the talking about gender norms is the like you said the generalization and the expectation that kind of society puts on them. That does not mean that everyone falls into those. I think it's that we have to hold them in mind because that's a real external factor that impacts how people behave. Um, and like you said, there's been a shift in the last 10, 15 years that has allowed for, for more fluidity in that. Um, but absolutely, there. I, I think that there are people of all genders, but men, women, doesn't matter, who have to prove themselves or feel that need to prove themselves. And, and it's not a good fit. And I think like, you know, we have such great students here, I think partly because of what you're talking about, that they're kind of leaving their ego at the door and coming in willing to learn, willing to try, willing to work on it again. Um, and that is, I think, what you need in order to succeed in this and to get what you want out of it, to get what you need out of it. Um, it certainly was very humbling for me when I, when I started because I think, you know, I, I was having this conversation with a couple students the other day, you know, I'm, I'm the daughter of Cuban refugee immigrants and the immigrant experience, the, the first generation of immigrant parent experience is like, I have to do everything well because they've sacrificed so much. Like, what is it all for if I'm not perfect? And that Krav was helpful in kind of knocking me down a few pegs and helping me realize I, I'm not going to be good at everything. I can't be good at everything and I shouldn't be good at everything. And that I can find where my paths are um, and work on those and then learn from other people who know way more than me about the stuff that I'm not an expert in and stuff that I'm not as good in. Um, and Krav was helpful with that because you get knocked down a few times and you learn, well, you're going to get knocked down a few more times. But it's also safe to get knocked down. It is safe, yes. Your way of manufacturing failure and manufacturing stress in a way that it's constructive. That was all Krav talk for today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Christine. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day. You too.